Welcome to Eagle Clinical's expert update, the business of natural health. Whether you're working full-time in clinic, if it's your side hustle, or if you are thinking about starting a business in natural health, this podcast is for you. Your host, naturopath and educator, Lawrence Katsaris, will interview industry experts to share easy-to-consume expert updates. With the help of the experts, Lawrence will aim to simplify some of the more confusing questions that emerge when running a business, so you can get on with more important things. Hello and welcome to Eagle Clinical's Expert Update, the show that speaks to industry experts and covers various topics around the business of natural health. I'm your host, Lawrence, and today is part one of a series on simplifying research for natural health practitioners. We'll delve into a variety of common questions to provide clarity around the issues that arise when it comes to some of the tricky questions around the importance of research, types, and assessing quality, as well as how this information can be of benefit to you in clinical practice. In some of our later episodes, we'll discuss opportunities as a naturopath in research and the process of running your own research in clinic. Our guest today is Vanessa Vigar, Clinical Research Programs Manager at Integria Healthcare. Vanessa is a qualified naturopath and academic and plays an instrumental role in the research and development department overseeing clinical research at Integria. Vanessa recently completed her master's in clinical trials research through the University of Sydney and her research has been published in a number of journals. Vanessa has almost a decade of experience working in research, specialising in the development, design and execution of clinical trials in partnership with several different universities and research institutions. Vanessa, firstly, congratulations on completing your master's and thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thanks very much, Lawrence. I'm happy to be here. Looking forward to our discussion today. So to start off, can we just talk about and define research? It's a very generally used term. In your perspective, would you mind defining what research is? Sure. Well, you're right, Lawrence, like research is a really broad term, but it generally involves some sort of documented scientific investigation. So they can take many different forms, and obviously some of these are going to be more important for practitioners than others. But each of these different types has a place in helping us to understand what works and what doesn't, and also the mechanism behind why it might work. So for practitioners, being able to understand and apply this research information, is it's a valuable skill that they can use to enhance their clinical practice. Definitely. Now, why is it that you think that research is so important for practitioners? I think research is important for practitioners on a few different levels. At the most basic level, understanding the research behind a product or the ingredients within a product can help practitioners to use it most effectively. And the research can provide evidence on dose, duration of use, specific indications. It might also provide valuable information on co-prescribing or safety concerns and interactions. So understanding the research for a particular herbal nutrient can also give practitioners confidence in what they're prescribing, particularly if they are able to explain some of that supporting research to their patients. This can help their patients to feel more confident that they're being treated with evidence-based medicine um, rather than guesswork. So yeah, um, another important function of clinical research is that it can confirm or sometimes contradict traditional evidence or previously understood activity of herbs and supplements. Sometimes research has shown us that actually a particular herbal nutrient doesn't act in the way that we thought it did. And a good example of that is human bioavailability studies where 
the uptake of nutrients can be measured and we can compare different forms of vitamins or minerals for their effectiveness. These can show whether the nutrients are reaching the targeted sites within the body and whether they're being converted into different bioavailable forms within the body. So these types of studies have supported new effective forms of folate, for example. And then on a broader level, the more high quality research that we can conduct on natural medicines, the more that we can increase the status of the tools of trade that we use in our profession. So it gives us some power to be able to point to research showing the effectiveness of the things that we're prescribing in practice. And this is as much for the patient as it is for other practitioners that we work alongside, especially other medical health professionals. So we do need to also respect traditional evidence and there's all, this will always have a strong role, particularly in herbal medicine, and it shouldn't be discounted. Certainly not saying that this evidence is not valid and we need randomised controlled trials on everything, but it's important that we're able, where possible, to add supporting scientific evidence to that framework of traditional evidence, you know, particularly high quality research um, in natural medicines. Fantastic. Thank you. So. Would you mind taking us through the different types of research and what roles they play or you know, how they can support practitioners in practice? Sure. So let's start with research that's conducted on people. So this is known as clinical research. Now there's two main types of clinical research that are conducted. These are either interventional, for example, a clinical trial, or observational, where nothing is specifically given, but people are observed and then associations or risks are extrapolated from those observations. Results from both of those types of research can be used to inform clinical practice. Often uh, the information presented to practitioners to support the ingredients within the products or the product activity will come in the form of a clinical trial. The most common design of this is where a supplement is given to one or more groups of people for a period of time and the outcomes of interest are evaluated both before and after the intervention. Where there's only one group and everyone receives the active treatment, this is known as an open label or an uncontrolled trial. And where there is more than one group of people and one group is receiving a placebo or some other form of control, then this becomes a randomised controlled trial or an RCT. Now, is there much of a difference in the results of an uncontrolled trial versus a randomised controlled trial? Could you explain the difference between those? Yeah, there is actually. Just the simple act of participating in a trial can very often have an effect on the patient's symptoms. So this is known as the placebo response. And for that reason, it's important that trials do have a control group so that the treatment response can be separated out from that placebo response. In some areas, some therapeutic areas, there can be a really strong placebo response, particularly around where people are being asked about, you know, things like how they feel and those sorts of things. So areas like depression, for example, the placebo response can be up to sort of a 50 or 60% improvement. So if the trial is not accounting for that, the results can be a little bit misleading. If um, open trial, open label trials are reported where only a single group of people is treated, these trials can show really impressive results. So it's important to remember that at least some of that result is likely to be contributable to that placebo effect. Um, and therefore those trials do not hold as much weight as a randomised controlled trial. And the results should generally be considered to be less strong than what is represented. Great, thank you. That helps clarify, I think, for the listeners about the importance of 
placebo versus non-placebo controls. So is this the same across all types of open-label trials? Like how does placebo response change over time or in different conditions? Yeah, well, some trials will have a much more exaggerated placebo response than others. So as I mentioned about depression having a strong placebo effect, in trials where there's an objective rather than a subjective outcome used to assess the results, then there's less of a placebo response. So an example of that could be where there's a, a, a blood measure such as cholesterol or blood glucose that's been measured as the main outcome for, for the trial. There'll be less of a placebo response in that than there would if people are being asked to respond about how they're feeling about something. Um, and it's also good to know that the placebo response will lessen over time. So if you're looking at the results from an open-label study that's got a short duration of treatment, so less than two weeks or so, then the results will likely be more impressive than one which has a longer duration of treatment of, say, three months. That's a really good point. Thank you for clarifying that. Now, aside from clinical trials, we've been speaking a lot about those. What other types of research are useful for practitioners to be aware of? Yeah, beyond clinical trials, other human clinical research that can provide important information is observational studies. So these aren't used very much in herbal medicine research. However, there's some very large observational studies that have been conducted on vitamins and minerals. And these studies generally look at health outcome associations over a long period of time, like usually many years. Um, for example, a large observational studies into vitamin D and calcium to reduce the risk of bone fracture in the elderly. Like practitioners might want to refer to these types of research studies to justify to their patients why they should be taking specific nutrients over the longer term. And then there's other research fields that aren't conducted on humans. So these can also be of some use in clinical practice, although they're not of as much value as those that have direct human clinical relevance. Um, these may take the form of research in animals. Um, we don't conduct any animal research at Integria Healthcare, but obviously there's a lot of animal research out there. And also in vitro research. Animal research uh, will usually provide mechanistic support for the actions of specific herbs or nutrients. So the, the sort of the physiological changes that take place in the brain or in organs, they can be assessed in animals in a way that we are not able to assess in a human trial. So those sorts of studies can provide valuable insights into the way that a herb or nutrient works to affect the symptoms that we can see changing in clinical practice. And in the same way, like in vitro studies, so this is research that's done in test tubes or on cultured cell lines, that can also provide backup data to support those effects. Um, a bit of a rationale for the way that we think that it will work in humans. This type of research should be considered to be supportive only to supplement traditional knowledge of herbal medicine use or to understand better the mechanistic effects of the actions that are actually seen in clinical research. But they can still provide some valuable data. Thank you. That's a comprehensive overview of the different levels of research. So we know that when we're looking at those different trials that you're mentioning, they have, I guess, different benefits and consequences. Would you mind discussing how should practitioners assess the quality of research? Yeah, well, the quality of research is, is so, so, so variable. Um, I think to assess the quality of research, it's, it's probably important for practitioners to start at the top of the evidence hierarchy. 
And most practitioners would know about this. Um, it's something that's been determined by the NHMRC and we're all taught this at some point during college or university. So according to the evidence hierarchy, the highest level of evidence that is generally accepted to be a systematic review of clinical trials. Um, and a systematic review is a, it's a synthesis of the research, um, usually RCTs, but it can also incorporate observational research into those as well. On a particular herb or nutrient for a, a particular condition, there's, there's so many systematic reviews out there now that there's a good chance that there is one on the herb or nutrient that you're looking for. And sometimes there's even more than one on the same topic. So these are often a really good place to start looking at the research as they'll usually give a good overview of the effectiveness and also examine the quality of the research that's being conducted on the topic. These, these usually provide a detailed description of each of the individual studies that they've discussed as well. And so you know where to look for more specific information if you need it. But the limitation of systematic reviews is that they can be highly restrictive. So depending on the criteria that the authors have set for inclusion, um, I've read systematic reviews where the author has determined that only one out of five or six or more trials on a topic are able to be included because their definitions have been set so tightly or in a really specific way. So sometimes it doesn't always represent the whole body of the research, but most often though, they give a really good overview and like I said, that gives them the option to, to dive deeper into those individual cl clinical trials because most often the practitioner will be looking at individual clinical trials. Definitely, it would be lovely to have systematic reviews on everything that we're looking for in practice, wouldn't it? But it's often not <laughs> the case. So what's the main things that you think practitioners need to be looking for when they're assessing the quality of those clinical trials? Like how do they, how, how should they determine, is this a useful clinical trial that I can use and take some information from, or is this maybe a, not the best designed clinical trial? Mm. Yeah, well, the best way to determine the quality of a trial they might be reading is to go through a bit of a checklist. So I'll go through some of the most important points that practitioners would like to consider here, but I can also provide you with a downloadable checklist that practitioners can refer to if you like. That'd be fantastic. So, um, we can include that in the show notes. So thanks. Yeah, if you could go through your, your list would be great. Thanks, Vanessa. Okay, no worries. So there's a few things that um, that practitioners need to think about. Firstly, as I referred to earlier, you know, is there an appropriate control group that's been used in the trial? So remember that if there's if there's not, and particularly if it's a short trial, that you might need to interpret the results with a little bit of placebo response scepticism. Um, you also need to look at where we're both or more, if there's more than two groups, were, were the groups all similar at baseline? So before they were supplemented with anything, were they sort of roughly equivalent? And were they both treated equally throughout the, throughout the trial in terms of additional treatments or tests? You need to look at whether there was a large number of dropouts in the trial, and if so, why? Was that explained? Sometimes there's a large number of people enrolled, so there might be say 100 people enrolled in a trial and then they only report the results on 70. So you have to think about what happened to that other 30 people, you know, why they may have dropped out. Um, it's also good to look at how the analysis has been reported and this can be a, a bit of a tricky area to kind of work out and understand without a knowledge of statistical interpretation. but 
a simple way to, to sort of a simple thing to look for is that poor quality trials will often report only the difference between baseline, which is the pretreatment, and the study completion, so after treatment. And they'll only report the the difference between those two time points in the active treatment group. And sometimes even when there is a control group, the analysis won't compare those two groups. So a good quality or a higher quality trial that's properly controlled and analysed will compare the difference in a between group statistical analysis. So this is where both groups are compared at both the beginning and the end point. So for the practitioners, it's important to look for key phrases like significantly different compared to control or a between group comparison. And that will give you an indication that they've actually done a, a statistical analysis between the groups rather than looking at simply the change from baseline to end in a single group. Um, and then finally, it's important to understand the strength of the treatment effect. So very often trials will report that there's been a significant difference between the active and control, which is great. They'll give you a p-value of less than 0.05, which means that there's, you know, there's a statistically significant difference between those two groups. But you need to also think, is it clinically significant? So a change of 2% or 3% may be able to be classed as statistically significant, depending on the trial. But if your patient is only 2% different, 2% better, then that's not likely to be a clinically meaningful outcome for them. Um, statistics, yeah, statistics can be reported in so many different ways. And there's obviously, I'm not going to go into any of that there, but if you like, Florence, I can include some cheat sheets on statistical interpretation that you can hand out to practitioners. That'd be great. Thank you. That'd be really useful. Oh, and one more issue to be aware of when reviewing clinical research is the specific type of preparation that they've used in the trial or trials. So this is particularly relevant to herbal research, where the type of extract that they've used can be very important. The different extracts that can be made from the same plant or even the same plant part can be very different in terms of their chemical composition and therefore their clinical effects. So it's important to know that what you're looking at in the research is going to be comparable to what you're going to be using in the products or the, um, the herbs or things that you're giving to your patients. Such an important point. I think that sometimes people may try to um, draw parallels from some ingredient research and then may not actually realise that they, they're not getting the same chemical compounds or you're not getting the same dose of ingredients, so you're not going to be able to achieve the same results. And I think what you've said just before there about it's, while it might be statistically significant in a trial, does that produce a clinical significant impact on your patient's improvement in health is what's so important. Because at the end of the day, that's what we're using research for as clinicians is to try and see how can we utilise this research to help us produce better results for our patients. So thanks mm, so much absolutely. for overviewing that for us, Vanessa. That was fantastic. I think a really good lay of the land. And I know that reviewing research can be tricky. There's lots of nuances in there that can um, be a little bit confusing for some of us if we're not dealing with it every day, such as how you are. And I think the checklist that you'll be able to provide is an important tool. Just the same as the cheat sheet on statistics is useful because I know that it's not something that a lot of us love to do is delving into stats. So that will be fantastic. We'll include those in the show notes for everyone. Um, so thank you again. Um, we're fortunate enough to be joined by Vanessa in our next ex episode two. Uh, part two of this series will discuss the opportunities in research as a naturopath. 
and we'll touch on Vanessa's journey as well as her current work undertaking research in natural medicine. So thank you for joining us on this episode and, um, and on the show, Vanessa. Okay, great. Thank you, Lawrence. I look forward to talking to you again. Thank you. And thanks to you all for listening to Eagle Clinical Expert Update. With the help of researcher Vanessa Viger, we hope we've helped to simplify some of the more confusing areas and questions that may emerge when running a small business to allow you to get on with the more important things. Thank you for listening to Eagle Clinical's Expert Update. For further information and show notes, visit the Eagle Natural Health website at eaglenaturalhealth.com.au. If you have a topic that you would like us to cover, we'd love to hear from you. You can get in touch with us on the Eagle website or message us through our social media pages. Don't forget to subscribe to keep up to date with the latest episodes.